Welcome to The Right Psych, a podcast geared towards medical students to learn about careers in psychiatry. My name is Keenan Clausen, and myself and a few other medical students from UBC have assembled to interview psychiatrists from a diverse array of subspecialties in order to explore the enormous breadth of practice in this exciting and evolving field of medicine. We hope that you discover what could be the right psych for you. Today, I have the pleasure to be interviewing Dr. Jennifer Russell. Dr. Russell graduated from medical school at McMaster University and completed her psychiatric residency at the University of Toronto. She is now based in British Columbia, where she is an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia, practices as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and serves as the interim uh, psychiatrist-in-chief at BC Children's Hospital, as well as the program director of the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Fellowship Program at the University of British Columbia. Thank you for joining our series. Thank you so much uh, for having me, Marinette. Um, this is very exciting. And we're very excited to have you. Now, our first question that I'd like to open with is your journey through psychiatry and what it was that initially pulled you to the specialty. So I have a very unconventional path. And to answer that question, you have to go before med school for me. So when I finished high school, I was one of those kids that had no idea what I wanted to do. I'd never even heard of a psychiatrist, really. And I ended up doing a commerce degree at Queen's University. And during my time um, at Queen's, I got heavily involved in social activism and volunteer work, specifically working with prisoners and people living in poverty, working in soup kitchens. I actually visited inmates in Kingston Penitentiary during my time there. And I really sort of fell in love with working with people and realized that business school was like not the right fit for me, but I didn't know what to do. So I ended up applying and getting a master's in social work from the University of Toronto. And I, initially I was going to do a combined law MSW program, which they had at the time. I don't know if they still had it. And I ended up starting with social work and I really fell in love with clinical work. I did a placement at the Addiction Research Foundation. And in my second year, I worked in a children's mental health agency with kids who had learning disabilities and other mental health issues as well. And this is where I met Dr. Faye Mishna, who's now Dean of the Faculty of Social Work at U of T, and realized I needed more training to really be the kind of therapist or social worker clinician that I wanted to be. And I was lucky enough to get accepted to a fellowship program at the Hanks Delcrest in Toronto, which is now merged in with sick kids, where I did a two-year fellowship in child psychotherapy, infant, adolescent, and latency age kids. And that's where I found child psychiatry. And I was extremely fortunate to have two mentors there, um, Dr. Frieda Martin and Dr. Marshall Kornblum. And I had the chance to be on both of their teams. And I managed to work up enough courage to ask them to be letters of reference for medical school. And you have to remember, I applied with no science courses. So I had grade 12 bio, I think, in chemistry, no physics, no MCAT. And so I was really one of those like out of the box applications. And not only did they both write letters of reference for me, but the two of them supported me throughout medical school residency. And even now, unfortunately, Dr. Martin passed away, but Dr. Kornblum is still a mentor for me. And I actually just presented at Grand Rounds at Sick Kids for his team two months ago. So I went to medical school to become a psychiatrist. Um, I was obviously open to everything in medical school and I, I loved my time at McMaster, but 
I have to be honest in my heart. I think psychiatry was there from the beginning. Wow. That was a wonderful journey. And it kind of rounds up the psychiatry by psychosocial model, but you've lived through it. That kind of brings us to now in terms of your subspecialty and your chosen field with child and adolescent psychiatry. What have you found that kept pulling you towards it? So again, like this is an interesting story of where like life meets what's out there. So in my last year of residency, well, actually maybe taking back to 2008, two years before the middle of my residency, you might not remember this, Marina, but there was a recession in Canada and big stock market crash, et cetera. So that actually affected my husband's job. And he was offered a position out here in Vancouver, which was really an awesome opportunity for him. And you can imagine, um, I was actually at the end of my fourth year of a five-year program and all of our friends and family live in Toronto, both of both sides, like we're born and bred. Moving to Vancouver wasn't really in the plan, but at the same time, I felt like you regret the things you don't do in life and not the things you do. So we went and did it and came out here. And I was always interested in working with transitional age youth. So I think ages sort of 16 to 24. So I sort of straddled adolescent and young adults. And specifically, I was working out of Covenant House in Toronto, which was a revolutionary program where instead of having kids referred to psychiatry, we brought psychiatry into the shelter so that people didn't have to make appointments. And we offered a drop-in clinic. And at the time, Vancouver was looking to build on this model from Toronto at the Covenant House here. So I started connecting with Steve Mathias, and I was actually supposed to work at St. Paul's. However, they then had a hiring freeze. So I was lucky enough that Dr. Jana Davidson gave me an opportunity here to work on the child, the adolescent psychiatry unit. And I was also working in Vancouver Coastal Health on the CART team and the youth outreach team. And over time, I, I just really loved it. I love working with teenagers. I love combining, I think, social activism with psychiatry. One of the wonderful things about working with kids is, first of all, you get to work with their whole family, which is a little different than in adults or other areas of psychiatry but there's so much hope and the vast majority of our patients get better. So even though I've had some very, very hard days, I've also had some wonderful days and seeing these kids, you know, grow up, seeing them graduate from high school, getting pictures, it's very, very rewarding. And so having that opportunity to be part of someone's journey that way has just been really fulfilling for me. At Children's, I was mostly doing inpatients till a couple of years ago. I was the medical director of the adolescent unit. I love that job because I got to work with a whole multidisciplinary team, which I feel keeps you sharp and keeps you on your toes. And it's super fun. But the hospital opened up this really innovative program called Compass. And this was a chance to be part of a program from the ground up. And as a physician, that doesn't happen very often. Like usually these programs already exist. And Compass is the first provider support program in Canada, and it's the first one in North America to provide support for not only mental health, but also substance use issues. So there's no exclusion criteria, which I really like. So everyone who calls Compass is who is under the age of 25, we support their providers. And it was also a chance to do psychiatry in a different way. So rather than the traditional assessments, it's for supporting family doctors, pediatricians, therapists, elders, to take care of kids in their home community. And that usually is the best care, except for some of the very severe cases where people do need to come into hospital. It's usually better to treat kids and their parents in their home community with their supports. So that started in 2018, and I've been doing that for the past 
three years and the program has grown to over 3,000 cases and the team has grown and we're really targeting areas of psychiatry that have been harder to hit remote areas, rural areas, indigenous areas, and working collaboratively, like how do we work together to improve equity of care for children and youth living in these areas? So my social justice activism side found that really rewarding. And also the chance to do something different has been rewarding and invigorating. And over the past year, I was lucky enough to be able to become the program director for the child and adolescent psychiatry residency program. And that is a chance for me to work again with amazing colleagues to nurture people like you to become child psychiatrists. So that's also very, very exciting. So you've mentioned a lot of the rewarding pieces that you have found and that you keep going back to and keep building on like the social justice piece and the collaboration and the teamwork. On the flip side of that, what would you say has been kind of the hardest part? So for me, I'd say there's been two really hard parts. The first one, and I remember even bringing this up when I was doing my CARMS interview, and I don't think it's changed since then because they asked me the same question. Um, Having patients, like losing patients to suicide, that has definitely been the hardest part for me. It's really hard when you're seeing cases like on an adolescent unit that have had you know, in some cases, very severe mental health issues and, you know, teams bending over backwards, families bending over backwards. But anytime I think a child, well, anyone dies of suicide, it's a very tragic loss. And it's very hard to be the psychiatrist of a patient that dies by suicide. I think you're always left wondering, like, what if I had done something differently? Was there something else that could be done? Um, and it, Luckily, it doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, I think it reverberates within our community. So that that is definitely something that's been challenging. And I, I can't say it gets easier because like it's a loss is a loss, right? What's helped is having other patients and families do really well and working with a supportive team, but it's still quite difficult. The second thing that I find hard is often in psychiatry, adolescent psychiatry, child psychiatry, but I suspect other areas of medicine as well, but I don't, don't want to speak on their behalf. There's a lot of very passionate people. And with that, you have people that feel like they know the right thing, which is really hard in complicated cases where there might not actually be a right answer. It's not like we're following a guideline for antibiotics and there really is a right antibiotic. It's a pathology result. And no, no, like there really is a right answer. Psychiatry is much more subjective and relationship oriented and attachment. So out of that passion, sometimes there can be more conflict, team conflict, uncertainty. And I think sometimes, especially when cases are are difficult, and again, I think the more difficult the case and the more passionate the people, the more conflict, which in some ways is a great thing because conflict can be very generative as well. But sometimes that can have a toll on, on me personally. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a lot of passionate people in the field, um, so I can see how that builds up. Now, in terms of the first drawback that you'd mentioned, the one in dealing with loss and grief, how have you been managing or coping with that? Yeah, I'm really glad you bring this up because this is something I don't think we talk enough about on rotations. And I remember, um, actually, when I was talking to a senior resident when I was in med school about psychiatry, And they said to me quite astutely, although at the time it washed over my head, you know, have you ever thought about how medicine is going to change you? And I guess the first thing is 
um, acknowledging it. I think it's not just psychiatry, but I think every area of medicine, it does have an impact on us personally as people. You can't just put on your white coat and stethoscope and use that as a shield to get protected by what you're going to see or experience that day. So I think the most important thing, and it's amazing that you're bringing this up because this shows there's been a change in medical education and that people are talking about it, is acknowledging that like if you choose psychiatry or child psychiatry, that your work will impact you and you are going to have days that, you know, hard things are going to happen or there's going to be conflict. So once you've acknowledged it, I think it's like, how do you come up with a plan or strategy that's going to help you? Because just because something's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Like you wouldn't be in medical school right now if that was your attitude in life, right? Because medical school is hard. <laughs> so, you know, the people who, who get to, to your stage have already, you know, are the kind of jump in and face the challenges kind of people. So for me, I think it is actually a, a collection of strategies and things that I use over time. I don't think you ever get to a point where you're like, you're not going to get impacted. Or if I get to that, maybe that's a time to not practice anymore. Because I think to be authentic and really be with people, you have to put yourself out there. So I have, for, for me personally, I really studied this. So I went and looked to courses on compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma and burnout to find out more about it. And from there, learned about like evidence-based strategies. And actually one of the most important things you can all do, even people who don't want psychiatry, is to learn about these topics. One of the most effective strategies other than educating yourself is having um, a community or peer support where you're really able to talk about your feelings and your experiences in a safe way. So for myself, um, I'm a member of a peer support group. We meet, um, actually a member of two groups. One of them is all child psychiatrists and we meet once a month for two hours. I'd say that this group has really grounded me. First of all, even just setting the time aside to talk and reflect and think about these things is in itself, I think very helpful. But they're also the group of people that if something happens in between, I know they'll call me back. I know they'll be there. I can cry on their shoulder. They cry on my shoulder. You know, there is that like support. And these are people that as Brene Brown says, like they're in the arena. They're working hard in maybe different areas, but they're also working hard. They're bruised. They're dirty. We can talk about those things in like a very, I'd say, loving and supportive way. I also last year with the pandemic was asked to start the peer support group for doctors of BC. And all of you are welcome to join that. It's free. It's every two weeks on Wednesday from 12 to 1. And even though I'm a co-facilitator, I also get a lot out of it. It's peer support, right? So I get support too. And then in addition, I've been doing things like really prioritizing exercise for me. I'm a huge Peloton, you know, user and really trying to make sure that I have joy in my life. So what are the things like I pre-pandemic loved going out with my friends for dinner and drinks, you know, during the pandemic, we did that occasionally over Zoom. I know it wasn't exactly the same, but how do you make sure you have joy outside of your job? You know, how do you live your life? Like I, I have an amazing partner. I've got two kids. We spend a lot of time on the island. So I really try to put as much into my life outside of medicine as into medicine to kind of keep myself more balanced. And then the last thing for me is sleep. I'm like pretty ruthless with sleep. So yeah, I, I would say that it's a work in progress for me. 
I think as a physician, we have to keep ourselves healthy to take care of other people. And it's a work in progress. I've never achieved a perfect state, but I think the quest is maybe a lifelong journey. Right. And the process itself has been helpful. And that's kind of what you've learned from your studies and applied in your life and encourage us to do. And that's really good to hear, especially how connected psychiatrists are across BC, across maybe Canada. Have you had any other collaborations outside of Toronto for you? Have you noticed any kind of national-wide work being done in adolescent psychiatry? Oh, yeah. So there's the Canadian Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, which brings together all the child psychiatrists across Canada. And they meet every year. And like virtually everybody is a member. Um, like you just pay a couple hundred dollars. And so they have a, a conference every year. They have working groups. They also do like um, advocacy and, and writing. So that's a great way of being connected across the country. I would say what's actually been more meaningful for me, though, because to be honest, I haven't been an active participant in that has been when I've had difficult cases is consulting other psychiatrists across Canada. So when you get to a certain point, there are people in like different provinces that have expertise or might be, think of things differently or approach cases differently. And being able to consult, and actually it's kind of a combination of medical expertise slash peer support, because being able to talk to someone like outside of your team and review a difficult patient and what's happening has been not only, I think, great for patient care, but also, I don't know, rejuvenating and, and found like most child psychiatrists tend to be really nice people <laughs> and they all like to talk usually. So it's a very collaborative bunch. There are definitely people like I have small kids. So going to conferences like outside of BC or Vancouver hasn't been like a huge focus for me, but there's a lot of opportunity for some people. They do that. And there's the American equivalent as well. So it's not just Canadian. On Compass, for example, we're a member of a I'll say international, but we're the only Canadian program. So it's 25 American programs and us that do a call once a month to review how things are going and common issues. And that's a chance also to like further network and, and meet other people. So it's a small world now with technology. Speaking of technology, you talked a little bit about how Compass has been reaching rural and remote areas. Has this started as a result of COVID or had this some, been something in the works before that? And how do you see it kind of move forward? So for me, it was in the works well before COVID. So my third year residency, I did a year of telepsychiatry at SickKids um, who were, had already started on this path. And then when, I'm not sure when BC Children started, but pre-COVID, we were already fully equipped to see kids across the province through telepsychiatry. And on Compass, so actually prior to COVID, almost 100% of my job, like really everything outside of call was online or on phone for me. So it wasn't as big of a switch maybe as for other people. I think what has switched is um, public's perception and also the number of platforms. So for example, at least at Children's, we weren't allowed to use Zoom before the pandemic. Other places did allow Zoom. Now we're allowed to use Zoom. And I think that this has opened things up for both patients, providers. I personally think telehealth is here to stay. I was on the working group for Doctors of BC for this. I has, have access to telehealth as a patient, as a mom, and as a provider. And I think it's really convenient for certain things. I think some things still need to be done in person, obviously. Like, I don't think the hospital is going to go away anytime soon, or nor should it. But it's really increased 
um, accessibility to care and equity. Even like taking your child for like a routine visit, you know, the average parent has to take like time off work, pull their kid out of school, park, go, and being able to zoom in with the, you know, physician is a lot easier. Now, obviously, if there needs to be a physical exam or vaccine or something that can't be done, but I personally think it's here to stay. And I think most people do, but that's my sense. Yeah. And it seems to be just improving accessibility in general, even outside of time of COVID. So it sounds like it's something that's extremely necessary at this point to continue with that theme of accessibility of, of healthcare in general. And you'd mentioned also a little bit about these changes that have been going on that excite you in terms of that technology and the increased access. Are there any other treatment advances that you see in child and adolescent psychiatry that make you happy? You know, I think child psychiatry is, is rapidly evolving. I think what's really hard is that we don't have enough of qualified people to meet the, at least our province's need. And I don't mean just psychiatrists, like also psychiatric nurses, psychologists, social workers, like there really aren't enough people to fulsomely meet the current picture in BC. And there's like ample data to support that. So I, I, I think what excites me, and I have to say, I'm not a super psychopharmacological whiz. So I'm sure there's new treatments coming down the path that I'll find out about as they come is how do we improve systems of care to better meet people's needs? And so the evolution of trauma-informed practice was quite revolutionary for me. I was co-chair of the steering committee here at BC Children's, but it really has changed the way I, I live my life and the way I, I work with patients in terms of more strength-based, more choice. Do you have to do therapy every week in person? Like, is that the gold standard? You know, I was just meeting with a clinician up north who felt horrible that he'd like never seen this kid. But then as he goes to talk about the case, talks to him on the phone all the time, he's connected with the, with the aunt and uncle who the child's living with, they call him in distress. He's really like therapeutically done so much for this kid, but it certainly isn't meeting a textbook definition. Now, assessing his care, I would say it's gold standard. He has met the family where they're at. He has developed a really effective therapeutic relationship. They trust him. The child's getting better. The family feels supported. So I think to me, that is what's exciting. Like people need care in different ways. And how do we adjust to different families what they need, different cultures, what they need, the timing of appointments, like how they're done, texting. So all of this to me is, is pretty exciting. Look at the foundries, right? Like they're now doing text therapy. They're like all over, right? Like text therapy when I was at your stage, which just didn't even exist. There's a lot of evidence for telepsychiatry in terms of the classic psychiatric appointment. I think we can all agree that if youth aren't engaged, whatever you do isn't going to work. So the younger generation, this is making me seem very old, and I don't think of myself as old yet, but I think text is their preferred mode of communication. So it's not that we've, we don't do phone or Zoom or in person, but if a young person feels more comfortable expressing themselves by text, wouldn't that be the first place to start to meet them where they're at? Now, some young people might still want to come in, 
for me, it's more about being open and having more than one way of working and actually thinking like, does this need an in-person visit? Like prior to COVID, everything was in person. We didn't give it a thought. And now we're actually like, do I need to see someone in person? Like if you were doing this podcast two years ago, you would have for sure come to my office. And I think we're seeing now you don't need to come to my office to do it. And that would have wasted time for you. You would have had to like come down to the hospital, would have taken you a morning instead of an hour. Imagine amplifying that over time. So the foundry has started, kids health phone has started. And the reality is kids are engaging this way. So whether or not there's an actual study that shows that it's better, it's certainly better than no care. And it's helping get kids connected and engaged. And I think, you know, society is changing. So we have to change with it. No, I agree with that. Jumping back a little bit, you'd mentioned that other than being on call, you're mostly virtual. So what's it like being on call, especially as a child psychiatrist? So I do call here at Children's, which I guess is general call, you want to, it's, um, but it's only children. Although as a child psychiatrist, you can do both. I could do more call if I wanted. So just people know there's people who really like call. So call here, I'd say um, it used to be a lot lighter than it is now. Unfortunately, there's like more kids presenting to the emergency department than there were like 10 years ago for mental health issues. It's mostly kids in crisis of some sort. So issues with either aggression, safety, and then kids that have like decompensated and the eMERGE can sort of be like a, it's like the way you get into the hospital. Like even if you're seeing like a team or pediatrician. So the exciting thing about call is you get to see everything. I also think call is a, a really unique opportunity. Like when a family shows up in crisis or youth is in the emergency department, it's often their first connection with mental health or psychiatry. And the way that connection is handled, I think sets the stage for how they feel about their mental health and mental health treatment for the rest of their life. So if they meet someone who's like kind and supportive and validating and hopeful, they're gonna carry that to other visits where if they feel like shamed and scared and you know not treated well, that's also gonna affect them. Sometimes it's hard because a lot of situations in child psychiatry, we can't effectively deal with in the emergency room. So it's unsatisfying that you're not, it's not like when you go for stitches and you leave and they're all done. And, but usually we're able to get kids and their families connected to a plan that over time will work and, and certainly provide education and support. And I guess the other downside about it is it, it can be tiring. <laughs> But one of the benefits of child psychiatry or psychiatry in general is that the life work balance tends to be pretty good. I think most healthcare professionals have worked more in the pandemic than normal, but I still think, you know, in psychiatry, we have a pretty good deal. It sounds like psychiatry focuses a lot on the provider, making sure that they're at a good place. Like you said, kind of checking in with the groups and discussing loss and things like that, just to make sure you're at a place to meet patients that need that kind of attention. So it's good to hear how it's prioritized right now. And we're actually running a bit close to time. So just a wrap up question would be, what would your final thoughts for medical students looking at psychiatry as a career option? So I would encourage people to really look at it. Um, I still think there's a lot of stigma about mental health. I still think there's stigma about choosing psychiatry as a career. 
And I've had people quietly say to me, oh, what did your parents think when you chose this? Or what did your friends think? Um, and, you know, psychiatry is an extremely rewarding career. Um, you have the chance to really get to know your patients. Um, there's such a wide range of options. Like if you're someone who likes crisis and you never want to see people again, well, we have emergency psychiatry. If you're someone who wants to develop like long-term relationships with people over time, you know, you can do psychotherapy, you can work in, in clinics um, like Epi or um, mental health teams that follow people like over their lives. It's a very innovative, I think the field is just starting to come out. The innovation and the, the certainly the public awareness and support for mental health has dramatically changed over the past few years. I think the pandemic is going to further this even more. I think it's a really rewarding and fun residency. I think it's a great career. There's a ton of flexibility, so you can manage it with like other areas of your life that are important to you. And I don't know anyone who's bored. It's not like, oh, this is my fifth pneumonia of the morning. You know, like that is just... It is exciting and diverse and challenging. I, I still feel challenged every day at work. And at the end of it all, I feel like I've made a difference. So even on those like really hard days or exhausting days, you still can go home with that in like your heart and go, it was a, a worthwhile slog. Like it was worth, it was worth it. Come on down <laughs> and meet people like I know all of us here at Children's, but even adult psychiatry as well, we would be delighted to meet with you guys one-on-one -on -one and hear more about what you're interested in, your wishes, your hopes for the future, but also your concerns. I think it's really important in fourth year to really think about these things because you're making some pretty big decisions. Psychiatry should be at top of the list. Thank you for all of that, for sharing your story with us, how you got there, and for just all the impactful points you left us with. Thank you again, Dr. Russell. Thank you, and good luck, everybody. This had been Dr. Russell with Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and this was The Right Psych.